Nehemiah chapter 2 and verses 1 through 9. In the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was brought for him, I took the wine and gave it to the king. I had not been sad in his presence before, so the king asked me, Why does your face look so sad when you are not ill? This can be nothing but sadness of heart. I was very much afraid, but I said to the king, May the king live forever. Why should my face not look sad when the city where my ancestors are buried lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? The king said to me, What is it you want? Then I prayed to the God of heaven, and I answered the king, If it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in his sight, let him send me to the city in Judah where my ancestors are buried so that I can rebuild it. Then the king with the queen sitting beside him asked me, How long will your journey take, and when will you get back? It pleased the king to send me, so I set a little, I set a time. I also said to him, If it pleases the king, May I have letters to the governors of Trans-Euphrates so that they will provide me safe conduct until I arrive in Judah? And may I have a letter to Asaph, keeper of the royal park, so he will give me timber to make beams for the gates of the citadel by the temple and for the city wall and for the residence I will occupy. And because the gracious hand of God was on me, the king granted my request. So I went to the governors of Trans-Euphrates and gave him the king's letters. The king had also sent army officers and cavalry with me. Thank you, Judy. You may know that uh, just up the street from us is what um, I like to call Church Road. You know how it is when um, in some sections of Denver you have um, Auto Dealer Row <laughs> where you have uh, Ford and Chevy and uh, Mazda and so on and so forth. Well, just up the ways up here east of us on Bellevue, you have Church Row. You have a number of churches um, and of course in the middle of those stands a synagogue. Um, how that fits, we leave to, to God to determine. Aish Denver is in the middle of that. But um, when I was a student at Denver Seminary, back in the dim and distant past, um, that whole area was what I would call uh, American suburbia um, of the non-Jewish variety. Um, and then shortly after we came here to Greenwood Village, there was a major population shift. Um, five major Jewish institutions moved to this area after we came here. And so the community lost some of its, what I would probably incorrectly call white Anglo-Saxon Protestant flavor, and it's now well over 25% Jewish. Um, 
And since H. Denver is an Orthodox community, you can understand that the community has is being built um, around the synagogue, so that people can go to synagogue with on Shabbat, w- and so that it is within walking distance. And by the way, there's also an aruv. Um, in case you're not familiar with that word, an aruv is a boundary marker. Uh, if you look up in the uh, at the the electric poles, you'll see thin strands of wires uh, that run in this area, and this is uh, the marker that indicates to observant Jewish people um, what are the limits in which they can walk on Shabbat and particularly uh, push a baby buggy without it being considered work. Um, So at the end of this church row is what looks like a city that is set on a hill. That is Cherry Creek Presbyterian Church. And, uh, you know, God has a sense of humor. Uh, This is a very missions-minded church. Uh, they support all kinds of ministries, and uh, both domestic and um, and foreign. And uh, God decided to bring the mission field right to their doorstep. And um, and yet they have no clue what to do with it, because they see these highly observant, rather sober and proper. Uh, Jewish folks dressed in black walk into synagogue and they feel like they're in an alternate universe. And yet, they have a heart. They have a heart. God has blessed them with a heart um, of compassion because they want to see these people come to know their Messiah, Yeshua, the Messiah of Israel. So this is where we have this is where we've come in uh, over the number over the past several years we've been invited to participate in missions um, Sunday and uh, what became real clear is that hundreds of people at Cherry Creek Presbyterian have Jewish friends uh, colleagues and even family members people who've been who have married into the into their families. By the way, uh, 58% of the Jewish community uh, is intermarried, Jews, non-Jews. Um, that's nationwide, and in Colorado, it's probably 75%, um, which tells you that there is an awful lot of intermingling, and this is a wonderful opportunity uh, for Jewish people who marry non-Jews um, to hear about Yeshua. And so we've come on a number of, number of occasions, and this year we really f- sensed a paradigm shift um, at the church. There were three of us who came, and we sensed a real hunger to share Yeshua with Jewish people. Uh, Linda Zim talked with one... Um, older lady who said that she lived real close to the synagogue and she would see uh, the members of Aish Denver walk to, to their synagogue and 
And she said, I, I, uh, Linda, in essence, put words in her mouth. And she said, I bet you long to see, to see them know the joy of Messiah. And this gal just teared up. Um, and I heard similar sentiment from others. And so we back up and we say, okay, God, since you are the master of the universe, you are always at work. What are you doing here? And as much to the point is, what do you want us to do in, in all of this? Because our commitment at Yeshua Tzion is not to do our thing, but rather to pray and to discern what God wants us to do and to dive into it, to follow right behind him. So what is clear to us is that the Lord is doing a new thing. And so because of that, we are committed and we have become even more committed to praying and seeking God for directions to show us what are the doors of ministry that he has for us. Um, we've been doing that in confidence, not in ourselves, but in confidence that God is able to convey to us the needed instructions. I know this is something we've talked about a lot from time to time. I hear it a great deal from people who say, why would God talk to me? You know, he talks to this person, that person, the other person, and they're infinitely more spiritual than I am. And God never tells me anything. You ever feel that way? Nah. And part of my conviction has simply been that God is more invested in conveying his heart and his will to us than we are in hearing and doing it. Can you say amen to that? So that's why we've been seeking God and we've been praying, not just on Wednesday nights, which is our main prayer time, but Shabbat mornings and other occasions. Um, because we are sensing an opportunity. And we want to be sure that we are engaged in what God wants to do. Sometimes it's easy, sometimes it's very difficult, as is the case with Nehemiah. And uh, we saw last Shabbat how much time he invested in sitting back and waiting on God for instruction. And um, so this morning as we look into chapter 2 and we see how God's plan is being unfolded, uh, let's remember that before the facts on the ground played out, there was a great deal of time given to seeking God and to hearing what's going on in the invisible, the spiritual, the heavenly realms. Let's pause for a minute and just ask the Lord to speak to us. Avinu Malkeinu, our Father and our King, we bless your name that you have good plans for us plans for good and not for evil. Thank you, Lord God, that you know each and every single one of us and that you have gifted us, you have called us, and you have designed 
custom design plans for us, Lord, wherein we should walk and serve you. And Lord God, we pray that today, that as we look into this portion of your word, we pray, Lord, that your ruach would speak to each one of us distinctly and clearly, Lord God, that each one of us would know what it is that you have prepared for us and that we would engage in it wholeheartedly, Lord God. Give us eyes to see you, to see you at work, Lord God. Speak to us, we pray, in Yeshua's name. Amen. Don't you love it that Scripture has all kinds of drama in it? You know, we live in a world that's full of drama. You know, Joy and I are raising our 10-year-old grandson, and we know all about drama. <laughs> and um, what we see here is drama. You know, sometimes we, we read portions of Scripture, and we zip through them, and... Uh, the drama doesn't grab us. And folks, there's drama here. Now, I wanted to pause for a few minutes and just see in terms, uh, encourage all of us to, to see what the drama is that is taking place here. Um, this is showtime. Nehemiah was praying, 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 praying some more. And uh, fasting and seeking God and crying, probably the better part of four months. And uh, we're not quite sure um, if he was in a different uh, palace than where the king was, exactly what the story was. But in any event, he is now here. Um, and, and, and you have to, if you're familiar with some of the soap operas upstairs, downstairs, and I know I'm dating myself here. Uh, you, you know that, that downstairs below where the, um, the masters of the house lived, you had the, the folks working in the kitchen. You kind of get that impression here that the wine is poured out and it is give, given to Nehemiah uh, to take to the boss. Uh, in this case, King Artaxerxes. And um, Nehemiah might have been one of a couple of other cupbearers, but here he is on stage. And by the way, when Nehemiah says that I was cupbearer to the king, he is not at all implying that that is how he saw himself. That was his job. Folks, it's difficult for us to um, distinguish who we are from what we do. You know, it's one time I had a fellow who said to me, Chaim, uh, you're a rabbi. That's who you are. And I said to him, no. Rabbi is what I do. I am a son of God and I'm his servant. That's who I am. And I believe that's the message you get from Nehemiah. Anyways, he comes, he brings the vino to the king, and uh, he's looking pretty glum. You can understand why. Um, we got a full picture of that in chapter 1. And we're given sort of a little editorial comment at the end of verse 1. 
um, I had not been sad in his presence before. And by the way, part of what you see in Nehemiah is the occurrence of two Hebrew words that are repeated over and over and over again, ra and tov. Uh, Loosely, they mean bad and good, but they obviously mean a lot more than just bad and good. Uh, In this case, it's sad or miserable, depressed, and we'll see a lot of the appearance of the word good, tov. Uh, Tov usually had to be associated, was usually associated with something from God, and ra was associated with something that did not come from God. So the king looks at him and he says, why is your face, why does your face look so sad? And the Hebrew here literally is, why is your face bad? Uh, and... Uh, Artaxerxes is clearly someone who is very observant. He knows that Nehemiah is not sick. And, and he makes this somewhat emotionally charged statement that says, you're not ill, this can be nothing but sadness of heart. And by the way, if you know anything about Persian court, uh, you know that that was not a light statement. It was not... Artaxerxes saying, hey, yo, what's up with that? Because uh, you can understand why Nehemiah was a cupbearer. He was a cupbearer because a number of kings went to meet her maker uh, after they had a little bit of vino. (laughs) And um, at least 10 years before, 15 years before, there was a rebellion against the same king. So when he says... um, your face is looking bad. There's something not kosher going on here. Um, you can understand that that's a very emotionally charged statement. You could have cut the atmosphere with a knife. And, and so we understand why then Nehemiah, as he is recording his memoirs, he's saying, um, and I was scared spitless. Now again, remember, folks, that Nehemiah was a a man of great prayer and a great faith. And and he was not someone that you can just uh, breathe on and he would fall right over. But he understood clearly that in this particular scenario, he he could have said the wrong thing and the king would say, okay, let's... Let's separate his head from the rest of his body. And that would have been done. So he is very definitely um, concerned. And remember that uh, what we saw in chapter 1, verse 11, part of what Nehemiah said specifically to God, he asked specifically, Lord, would you please grant him success and grant him favor. The Hebrew word there is literally compassion. In other words, please, Lord, do something with, with Artaxerxes' head and his heart so that he doesn't slice my head off. 
Um, but again, remember, folks, that even though, yes, his blood pressure is going through the roof, and yes, he's got fight-or-flight syndrome and heart-racing palms sweaty, the, what anchors Nehemiah through all of this is a basic conviction that God is the one who has his life in his hands. And, and I, for one, am delighted that Scripture does not airbrush people and does not give us this glorious kind of picture of who people are, but it shows them for who they are. Even someone who is a giant of the faith like Nehemiah, you see that when push comes to shove, he is trusting God and he's scared at the same time. And folks, that's, that's reality. That's reality. That's how our faith is. There are times when our faith is strong in the Lord and there are times when for whatever reason our faith is wobbling. And I, for one, am not ashamed to stand before you and first of all before God and say, Lord, you know me and you know that there are times when my faith is wobbling. None of us have perfect faith. And furthermore, when our faith is wobbly, we pray and say, Lord, would you please put some backbone here? Um, so Nehemiah is on stage here. And the king says, why is your faith face looking evil or bad and you're not sick? What's going on here? And um, Nehemiah just gives it to him straight and directly. You don't see him stuttering and kind of doing my bad. I, I'm sorry, king. I, I should be perpetually smiling before you and great and glorious king that you are. Um, he says, in essence, I have the right to look sad in your presence, king. I have a legitimate reason. Oh, King, you should live so long, and may I um, genuflect before you, etc., etc. Um, why should I not look sad when the city where my fathers are buried lies in ruin and its gates have been destroyed by fire? In other words, I have the right to, to look depressed and to be depressed here. Now again, we talked about this a little bit last time, but the truth is, this does not make a particle of sense to us. Um, how many of us would say, I'm depressed because um, the city where my great, 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 greats um, is now being attacked and is in ruin? Um, first of all, we don't know where that city is, most of us don't know because we've got 30 or 40 different uh, ethnic mixtures. But even if we do, do we really care? In this case, it's where his ancestors have been married, buried rather, over 141 years previously. No, no sense. This is uh, Jerusalem 
and Susa, Shushan, the distance is about a thousand miles. Again, we, we don't really connect with that. Uh, none of us. Um, in, in our case, my case, my, my folks are buried within 15 minutes or so from where we live. But my grandparents and ancestors are spread all over Poland. Uh, my father and I went to my father's hometown about 20 years ago. Um, and the first time the cemetery was in total disarray uh, because the Nazis had, had hauled off all the gravestones and were going to use them for construction. Then we came back a couple of years later and found out that they were not successful. And the local townspeople who are believers, who are followers in Yeshua, uh, searched and found the stones and brought them back to the cemetery. <coughs> Even so, I can't say that what took place in this little town called Skochev really keeps me up at night. Um, doesn't make a whole lot of sense, but you have to put ourselves in the mindset of Nehemiah's day, uh, roughly 2,500 years ago. Part of the picture then was, and I know folks, we're getting close to lunch, so please bear with me here. Part of what happens is when someone would die, they would be buried much of the time in a cave, and then after they were dead for a while, uh, their bones would be taken out and would be put together in the family bone repository, which was called an ossuary, which is why you find in the book of Kings, for example, a whole lot of references such as Asa rested or slept with his fathers and was buried them in the city of his father David. Slept and rested with them? Okay. Well, that simply means that when he died, after a while they took and put him along with everybody else in the same uh, family bone repository. So you can see why some of that has strong emotional connection for Nehemiah. But more to the point, God has a passionate heart and a commitment to Jerusalem, the city where he has put his name there. And because Nehemiah is a man of God, he shares God's heart. What matters to God matters to Nehemiah. So that's why he is all worked up about this. And is as a response to his prayers, God was doing all kinds of things here in the heavenlies, in, in the uh, invisible realm. None of that Nehemiah could see it at the time, but God was working in, in doing things in invisible realms so that when the time comes for Nehemiah to talk to the king, the king is prepared. God prepared his heart. Proverbs 21.1 tells us the king's heart is in the hand of the Lord and he directs it like a water, uh, as a man directs water course wherever he pleases. In other words, even a guy like Artaxerxes, a pagan king, is subject to God's 
working power. If you extrapolate to our situations, you know, oftentimes we look at our employers as sort of mini-gods, you know, because they have the power if they're um, pressed and squeezed uh, by the shareholders or by their superiors um, to come and say, today's your last day. I, I, I can't tell you how many stories I've heard about that. But even in that kind of situation, folks, our reality is based not on our earthly boss dictates, but what our heavenly boss dictates. That helps, keeps us sane. Amen? So the king says to him, what are you asking? In verse 4, and what Nehemiah does is he doesn't respond immediately but he first of all prays. Now I just want to kind of give you a play on words here for a minute. Uh, the word for ask in Hebrew, bakash, mevakesh, is always is often very much connected with seeking God. Psalm 24, for example, such is the generation of those who seek you, who seek him, who seek your face, O God of Jacob. Same kind of word there. So even though the king is saying to him, what are you asking? Nehemiah, that instant, split second, recognizes that, that the one he really needs to ask is God. And somehow, he offers a word of prayer. Now obviously, this is not one of these long intercessory prayers that we see in chapter 1, but probably one of these quickies, Lord, help! What do I say to this guy? I like to keep my head for a little while. And he prays. And by the way, you see that in Nehemiah from time to time when things get intense. Nehemiah, this, this go-getter, this can-do kind of a guy, pauses and prays. Why? Because he realizes that the source of his power, the source of his ability to accomplish, accomplish things is not from him, but from God. And, and he's pretty smart. And so he, first of all, gives the king a, a basic, uh, you know, the kowtowing kind of business. If it seems good to you and if, and if I seem good to you, a kind of a routine. By the way, both of those words, tov, means if you're in a good mood and if, and if I please you, uh, send me to Judah, to the, to the city where my ancestors are buried and I, will, and I will build it. Send me so I can rebuild. Now part of reality here, you, you may or may not realize is that about 10 or 15 years before that, the same king put a kibosh on the building project in Jerusalem. The same king. By the way, the enemies of Israel, the Samaritans and Arabs and so on and so forth, had been trying to trash talk and, and badmouth 
the people for almost a hundred years since they came back. And this was, was particularly intense during the reign of, of Artaxerxes, the same king that Nehemiah is serving. They sent him a letter. And they say, the king, you should know that the Jews who came up to us from you have gone to Jerusalem, are rebuilding that rebellious and wicked city. They're restoring the walls, repairing the foundations. Furthermore, the king should know that if this city is built, its walls will be, are restored. No more bucks, dineros, pesos will come to you. Okay? This is, by the way, Ezra chapter 4. And, um, and furthermore, what they say to Artaxerxes, um, we are loyal subjects of yours, and we are very much concerned to see to it that nothing adverse happens to your bucks. And, and of course, you can, you can see schmaltz just um, stuff dripping as, as they're saying this through this letter, and Artaxerxes doesn't seem to be too hip. He doesn't seem to be very astute, and he responds to them as saying, now issue an order to these men to stop work so that this city will not be rebuilt until I so order. Be careful not to neglect this matter. Why let this threat grow to the detriment of the royal interests? So he issues the word, they, they get it, they, they run to Jerusalem, and with great deal of force, they put a stop to the rebuilding of the walls of Jerusalem. Now this was about 10 or 15 years before what we're seeing here in chapter 2 of Nehemiah. And Nehemiah knows that. He knows that the same king that he's coming to seek favor to do that 10 or 15 years before, put the kibosh on it. So you can see that he's coming by faith, trusting in God, except you can understand why his faith is not going to be perfect. It's like, Lord, um, please protect me here. Because um, I'm not really sure. I, I, I trust you, but I'm not sure about this guy over here. And it's interesting how that the king, at this point, somehow changes his tune. Does prayer work, folks? Let me ask again, does prayer work? Yes. Same king, 15 years later, totally different tune. And Nehemiah, again, doesn't stutter, but he says, king, here's what I need. He obviously... Part of the wisdom God has given him is to have some kind of an idea of what needs to happen. Because he wants Nehemiah to be both heavenly good and, 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 and be spiritually and, and be earthly productive. He says, I need safety, I need timber. Again, you're looking at a thousand, twelve hundred miles worth of travel, a month or two, all kinds of opportunities for people to, to rob them. He needs safety and he also needs timber 
to, re to rebuild the, the gates and also to build his house. What does that suggest to you folks about Nehemiah here? To me, it, it conveys a basic attitude that Nehemiah knows who he is, not as a cupbearer to the king, but as the Lord's servant. And because he knows that he is a Lord's servant, he's able to walk in that kind of authority. He doesn't speak timidly. He asks for, he asks for exactly what he needs. Don't see any arrogance there. And this is a, a huge principle for us because more often than not, we don't understand the authority that God gives us. We don't understand the, that God commissions us to do His will and He gives us authority and authority is delegated power. Without that authority, folks, you and I can do zip. And after 23-some years in ministry, I started to get it. You know, you bang your head against the wall, you bang your head into in doors trying to open them, and you eventually get this, the clarity that maybe you need to wait for God to open doors. And once you do that, once you have a sense of direction, then you go for it because you know that God has endowed you with power. Not about you, your strengths, your weaknesses, any of that, but it's about God giving you a commission, giving you the power to carry out what he's called you to do. And that applies to every single one of us who is here in this room today, folks. Do you know that? Every single one of us has been gifted by the Spirit of God. We have at least one spiritual gift that needs to be invested in the building of God's kingdom. And we can either look at ourselves and say, man, who am I? Or you can say, God, you've called me. I want to engage in carrying out the commission that you have given me using the gifts and the power that you have for me. And, and part of the ditches, the picture that we run into is we go either from the who am I after all to the other ditch where we are full of ourselves and, and, and somewhat arrogant. Say, yeah, I've got it. Completely forgetting that the balance is to simply say, God has called me, God has empowered me. And I want to simply do the Father's will. As we saw earlier today in the slides, if you were here, Yeshua said, my food is to do the will of him who sent me. That's, that's what life is all about, isn't it? Or is your life about a long list of to-dos and agendas and, and strategies that you have come up with? and that you're determined by golly you're going to carry those out. You can go that route 
and eventually run into a wall or you can say God I want to do your will I'm, I'm sold out to do that at which point you realize that God has authority for you to carry out his will and that whatever it's going to take God will supply we often hear Philippians 4:19 quoted my God will supply your needs according to his riches and glory what we often forget is that that statement was made to a group of believers who were solidly committed to doing the will of God and to supporting the ministry of Paul. Can we really say, Lord, I trust you to give me everything I need and be indifferent to God's business? The biblical teaching of prosperity, the legitimate biblical teaching of prosperity means that all that you and I need to carry out God's will will be given to us. I know I remember last Shabbat I mentioned the fact that we have had a shortfall for a significant period of time the last few months. And my conviction is still the same, folks. God is able to make all grace abound to you so that in all times at all in all circumstances, you will have all that you need to abound in every good work. This is Second Corinthians chapter nine, verse, verse eight. Now he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will also supply and in increase your store of seed and will enlarge the harvest of your righteousness. All that you and I need to do in order to do God's work will be provided for us. You know, the founder of the China Inland Mission, Hudson Taylor, was famous for a quotation that he made, God's work done God's way will never lag for God's supply. It doesn't mean that we mumble a few prayers and then there's a trap door in heaven that opens and pfft, everything drops down. Because sometimes before God gives us, He has to transform us. He has to transform us. He has to work on us. But as I mentioned last Shabbat, our finances here at Yeshua Tzion are not about money. It is about us learning to trust God, that God is working a greater, doing a greater work with us, teaching us how to trust Him, learning how to come together in greater unity. Then at some point you're able to step back and say, wow God, you broke through, you did all these awesome things. And that's what we see um, at the conclusion of this segment here in Nehemiah chapter 2 and because the gracious hand of my God was upon me the king granted my request then at the end of the chapter Nehemiah tells 
the, the Jewish officials there in Jerusalem the same kind of message. I also told him about the gracious hand of my God upon me and what the king had said to me. Literally, the good hand of God was upon me. Where does Nehemiah put the, the absolute credit? On God. He doesn't say, folks, you should have been there. And I was so smooth and so slick, and I just, I just uh, schmoozed the king out of, out of uh, a commitment to let me have whatever it is that I wanted. You see, none of that. Nehemiah sought God, God answered, and Nehemiah said, yea, God. And that's part of the picture, folks, that as we learn to trust God and seek him, and as he meets our needs, as he comes through, sometimes not in the way we expect, and sometimes at 11.59.59, The result will not be merely us getting what we need, but the bigger picture will be that yes, we will get what we need and people will see that and will be impressed and that God will will receive the glory. That's the bigger picture, folks. Always. It's not just, God, I have a need. Meet it. But rather, Lord, yes, I have a need. Would you please provide in such a way that what has to happen in me takes place, what has to happen in others who see me takes place, and above all, that you will receive the, the, the praise that is proper to you. Again, Second Corinthians 9. Let me just encourage you to read that chapter because it really is not about money. Verse 11, you will be made rich in every way so that you can be generous through your generosity. Your generosity will result in thanksgiving to God. Verse 13, because of the service by which you have proved yourself, men will praise God for the obedience that accompanies your confession. In other words, again and again, What is life about, folks? It's not about us. It's about God. Not about our needs. Yes, we all have needs. And yes, God knows our legitimate needs. But life is not about our needs being met as much as it is about us being transformed, people seeing God at work in us, and God receiving the glory. That's the fuller picture. It's the fuller picture. And that is our desire as a congregation, as a mishpacha, folks. And the needs are great. Society around us is turning darker and darker. And from what I read in the paper, what I see on Facebook, it's enough to drive a person who is relatively sane, totally mishugi. And yes, you can engage in all the back and forth uh, verbal battles that are going on between one camp or the other, or you can say, you know, I need to pray. The Jewish community around us 
is joining a lot of those trends. And we, as, as a mishpacha, are in a different universe than a lot of the folks around us who are unbelievably affluent. And our own particular resources have been strained in helping a number of families that have extreme need. But folks, having said all that, we're learning who God is. We're learning who God is. We're committed to fervent prayer. We're committed to outreach. Not because that's our gig, but that's because God's heart. He wants to touch people. Folks, can you say amen to that? The last Shabbat I mentioned about the outreach to 16th Street Mall and mentioned earlier about our being at, at uh, Cherry Creek Presbyterian and we want to do more. We want to do more. Do you hear me, folks? We want to do more. Amen. Not because it's about us, but because the Father has good will and we want to do His will. We want to be tuned into that. And each and every single one of us has a place here. Let me just take a couple of minutes talk about some of that. First of all is the ministry of intercession. Whether you can go out and whether you, are, you see yourself as a, um, an eloquent, articulate speaker, the real work, folks, takes place on our knees. Amen. Let me say that again. The real work takes place on our knees. As we pray, God works. And we've been praying, and God has been doing a work, first of all, in us, than through us. And you may say, well, I'm not great big heap uh, spiritual giant uh, warrior. Or you can say, Lord, I want to learn to pray. Okay? You don't need to attend seminars and, and uh, get DVDs and CDs and you just Say, Lord, I want to learn to pray. Teach me to pray. Teach me to be an intercessor. And no, God may not call you to four months of prayer and fasting and agonizing over the fate of Jerusalem, but hey, we all have some time during our week when we can pray. Amen? Little snatches of time, perhaps. Say, God, teach me to pray. Even someone like Paul, the, the great apostle and evangelist, Rav Shaul said, pray for us that God may open a door for our message to go out. And we're blessed with a number of people here at Yeshua Tzion who are intercessors, I'm not going to uh, embarrass Michael here. 
much. But regardless, folks, you simply say, God, I want to engage. I want to engage. Begins in prayer. Then there is the evangelistic outreach, and the sky's the limit, folks. And God is creative. Especially in this day and age where you have all kinds of possible opportunities and all kinds of possible mediums. All kinds of different ways that the word of God can get out. And we want to learn to serve together in that, in that area. We've also been talking about making connections in the Jewish community. Simply coming alongside people and say, hey, we understand anti-Semitism. We understand the need to support Israel. We share that conviction. Folks, there are all kinds of ways in which each one of us can engage in the work of the kingdom as long as we're willing to look beyond our walls and beyond our own environment and our own needs and be able to say, God, you're a great God. And then stand back and see God at work and be able to say, Lord, thank you. Be able to say, the gracious hand of God was upon us. Has to begin here, folks. Has to begin with a heart that is willing to be invested in the Father's business. Let's pray. Would you please stand? Yes, we've been going for a while, but let me just encourage you to allow another few minutes as we worship the Lord together in, in conclusion, and especially as, as we have this afterglow with God. I believe that God has been here. I know God has been here. Amen? Amen. And just be receptive to what it is that God wants to say to us. Abba Father, we thank you for your infinite patience with us, Lord, especially when we're clueless and hard-headed and hard-hearted. Lord God, we, uh, we pray for eyes of faith for each one of us to be able to see your larger plans and purposes and to simply discern, Lord God, how we fit, where it is our place. I pray that, Lord God, for each one of us as individuals and for us as a mishpacha to have this strong sense of conviction that you have a precious call on us, that you have authority, you have the power, you have the equipping, you have the provision, that all that we need, Lord God, to carry out your will. And Father God, it is our desire to do your will. 
to see to it, Lord God, that in the process, Lord, as we struggle, as we make those baby steps of faith, Lord, sometimes, Lord God, that through the process, Lord God, that we would point ourselves more fully towards you and and uh, commit to being sold out to you, Lord, and to your purposes. And we ask, Lord, that you would receive all the honor and the glory. In the name of Yeshua. Amen.